Section 7 of Inca Lands. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Inca Lands by Hiram Bingham. Section 7. Chapter 4. Flamingo Lake. The Paranacochas Basin is at an elevation of between 11,500 and 12,000 feet above sea level. It is about 150 miles northwest of Arequipa and 170 miles southwest of Cusco, and enjoys a fair amount of rainfall. The lake is fed by springs and small streams. In past geological times, the lake, then very much larger, had an outlet not far from the town of Puyusca. At present, Paranacochas has no visible outlet. It is possible that the large springs which we noticed as we came up the valley by Puyusca may be fed from the lake. On the other hand, we found numerous small springs on the very borders of the lake, generally occurring in swampy hillocks built up, perhaps, by mineral deposits, three or four feet higher than the surrounding plain. There are very old beach marks well above the shore. The natives told us that in the wet season the lake was considerably higher than at present, although we could find no recent evidence to indicate that it had been much more than a foot above its present level. Nevertheless, a rise of a foot would enlarge the area of the lake considerably. When making preparations in New Haven for the bathymetric survey of Lake Paranacochas, suggested by Sir Clements Markham, we found it impossible to discover any indication in geographical literature as to whether the depth of the lake might be 10 feet or 10,000 feet. We decided to take a chance on its not being more than 1,000 feet. With the kind assistance of Mr. George Bassett, I secured a thousand feet of stout fish line, known to anglers as 24 thread, wound on a large wooden reel for convenience in handling. While we were at Chuquibamba, Mr. Watkins had spent many weary hours inserting 166 white and red cloth markers at six-foot intervals in the strands of this heavy line, so that we might be able more rapidly to determine the result in fathoms. Arrived at a low peninsula on the north shore of the lake, Tucker and I pitched our camp, sent our mules back to Puyusca for fodder, and set up the Acme folding boat, which we had brought so many miles on muleback for the sounding operations. The Acme proved easy to assemble, although this was our first experience with it. Its lightness enabled it to be floated at the edge of the lake, even in very shallow water, and its rigidity was much appreciated in the late afternoon when the high winds raised a vicious little sea. Rowing out on waters, while we were told by the natives had never before been navigated by craft of any kind, I began to take soundings. Lake Titicaca is over 900 feet deep. It would be aggravating if Lake Paranacochas should prove to be over a thousand, for I had brought no extra line. Even 900 feet would make sounding slow work, and the lake covered an area of over 70 square miles. It was with mixed feelings of trepidation and expectation that I rode out five miles from shore and made a sounding. Holding the large reel firmly in both hands, I cast the lead overboard. The reel gave a turn or two and stopped. Something was wrong. 
The line did not run out. Was the reel stuck? No, the apparatus was in perfect running order. Then what was the matter? The bottom was too near. Alas, for all the pains that Mr. Bassett had taken to put a thousand feet of the best strong twenty-four-thread line on one reel. Alas, for Mr. Watkins and his patient insertion of one hundred and sixty-six fathom markers. The bottom of the lake was only four feet away from the bottom of my boat. After three or four days of strenuous rowing up and down the eighteen miles of the lake's length and back and forth across the seventeen miles of its width, I never succeeded in wetting Watkins' first marker. Several hundred soundings failed to show more than five feet of water anywhere. Possibly, if we had come in the rainy season, we might at least have wet one marker. But at the time of our visit, November 1911, the lake had a maximum depth of four and a half feet. The satisfaction of making this slight contribution to geographic knowledge was, I fear, lost in the chagrin of not finding a really noteworthy body of water. Who would have thought that so long a lake could be so shallow? However, my feelings were soothed by remembering the story of the captain of a man-of-war, who was once told that the salt lake near one of the red hills between Honolulu and Pearl Harbor was reported by the natives to be bottomless. He ordered one of the ship's heavy boats to be carried from the shore several miles inland to the salt lake, at great expenditure of strength and labor. The story told me in my boyhood does not say how much sounding line was brought. Anyhow, they found this fathomless body of water to be not more than fifteen feet deep. Notwithstanding my disappointment at the depth of Paranacochas, I was very glad that we had brought the little folding boat, for it enabled me to float gently about among the myriads of birds which use the shallow waters of the lake as a favorite feeding ground. Pink flamingos, white gulls, small divers, large black ducks, sandpipers, black ibis, teal ducks, and large geese. On the banks were ground owls and woodpeckers. It is not surprising that the natives should have named this body of water Paranacochas. Parina equals flamingo, Cochas equals lake. The flamingos are here in incredible multitudes. They far outnumber all other birds, and, as I have said, actually make the shallow waters of the lake look pink. Fortunately, they had not been hunted for their plumage and were not timid. After two days of familiarity with the boat, they were willing to let me approach within twenty yards before finally taking wing. The coloring, in this land of drab grays and browns, was a delight to the eye. The head is white, the beak black, the neck white shading into salmon pink, the body pinkish white on the back, the breast white, and the tail salmon pink. The wings are salmon pink in front, but the tips and the underparts are black. As they stand or wade in the water, their general appearance is chiefly pink and white. When they rise from the water, however, the black underparts of the wings become strikingly conspicuous and cause a flock of flying flamingos to be a wonderful contrast in black and white. When flying, the flamingo seems to keep his head moving steadily forward at an even pace, although the rope-like neck undulates with the slow beating of the wings. I could not be sure that it was not an optical delusion. Nevertheless, I thought the heavy body was propelled irregularly, while the head moved forward at uniform speed. 
the difference being caught up in the undulations of the neck. The flamingo is an amusing bird to watch, with its haughty Roman nose and long rope-like neck, which it coils and twists in a most incredible manner, it seems specially intended to distract one's mind from bathymetric disappointments. Its hoarse croaking, What is it? What is it? seemed to express deep-throated sympathy with the sounding operations. On one bright moonlight night, the flamingos were very noisy, keeping up a continual chatter of very hoarse, What is it? Apparently, they failed to find out the answer in time to go to bed at the proper time, for next morning we found them all sound asleep, standing in quiet bays, with their heads tucked under their wings. During the course of the forenoon, when the water was quiet, they waded far out into the lake. In the afternoon, as winds and waves arose, they came in nearer the shores, but seldom left the water. The great extent of shallow water in Paranacochas offers them a splendid wide feeding ground. We wondered where they all came from. Apparently, they do not breed here. Although there were thousands and thousands of birds, we could find no flamingo nests, either old or new, search as we would. It offers a most interesting problem for some enterprising biological explorer. Probably Mr. Frank Chapman will some day solve it. Next in number to the flamingos were the beautiful white gulls, or terns. Looking strangely out of place in this Andean lake, 11,500 feet above the sea. They usually kept together in flocks of several hundred. There were quantities of small black divers in the deeper parts of the lake where the flamingos did not go. The divers were very quick and keen, true individualists operating alone and showing astonishing ability in swimming long distances under water. The large black ducks were much more fearless than the flamingos and were willing to swim very near the canoe. When frightened, they raced over the water at a tremendous pace, using both wings and feet in their efforts to escape. These ducks kept in large flocks and were about as common as the small divers. Here and there in the lake were a few tiny little islands, each containing a single deserted nest, possibly belonging to an ibis or a duck. In the banks of a low stream near our first camp were holes made by woodpeckers who, in this country, look in vain for trees and telegraph poles. Occasionally, a mile or so from shore, my boat would startle a great amphibious ox standing in the water up to his middle, calmly eating the succulent water grass. To secure it, he had to plunge his head and neck well under the surface. While I was raising blisters and frightening oxen and flamingos, Mr. Tucker triangulated the Paranacochas Basin, making the first accurate map of this vicinity. As he carried his theodolite from point to point, he often stirred up little ground owls who gazed at him with solemn, reproachful looks. And they were not the only individuals to regard his activities with suspicion and dislike. Part of my work was to construct signal stations by piling rocks at conspicuous points on the well-rounded hills so as to enable the triangulation to proceed as rapidly as possible. During the night, some of these signal stations would disappear, torn down by the superstitious shepherds who lived in scattered clusters of huts and declined to have strange gods set up in their vicinity. Perhaps they thought their pastures were being preempted. 
we saw hundreds of their sheep and cattle feeding on flat lands formerly the bed of the lake. The hills of the Paranacochas Basin are bare of trees, and offer some pasturage. In some places they are covered with broken rock. The grass was kept closely cropped by the degenerate descendants of sheep brought into the country during Spanish colonial days. They were small in size and mostly white in color, although there were many black ones. We were told that the sheep were worth about fifty cents apiece here. On our first arrival at Paranacochas, we were left severely alone by the shepherds. But two days later, curiosity slowly overcame their shyness, and a group of young shepherds and shepherdesses gradually brought their grazing flocks nearer and nearer the camp, in order to gaze stealthily on these strange visitors who lived in a cloth house, actually moved over the forbidding waters of the lake, and busied themselves from day to day with strange magic raising and lowering a glittering glass eye on a tripod. The women wore dresses of heavy material, the skirts reaching halfway from knee to ankle. In lieu of hats, they had small, variegated shawls, made on hand-looms, folded so as to make a pointed bonnet over the head and protect the neck and shoulders from sun and wind. Each woman was busily spinning with a hand-spindle but carried her baby and its gear and blankets in a hammock or sling attached to a tump line that went over her head. These sling carryalls were neatly woven of soft wool and decorated with attractive patterns. Both women and boys were barefooted. The boys wore old felt hats of native manufacture, and coats and long trousers much too large for them. At one end of the upland basin rises the graceful cone of Mount Sarasara. The view of its snow-capped peak, reflected in the glassy waters of the lake in the early morning, was one long to be remembered. Sarasara must once have been much higher than it is at present. Its volcanic cone has been sharply eroded by snow and ice. In the days of its greater altitude, and consequently wider snow-fields, the melting snows probably served to make Paranacochas a very much larger body of water. Although we were here at the beginning of summer, the wind that came down from the mountain at night was very cold. Our minimum thermometer registered 22 degrees Fahrenheit, near the banks of the lake at night. Nevertheless, there was only a very thin film of ice on the borders of the lake in the morning, and except in the most shallow bays, there was no ice visible far from the bank. The temperature of the water at 10 o'clock a.m. near the shore, and 10 inches below the surface, was 61 degrees Fahrenheit, while farther out it was 3 or 4 degrees warmer. By noon, the temperature of the water half a mile from shore was 67.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Shortly after noon, a strong wind came up from the coast, stirring up the shallow water and cooling it. Soon afterwards, the temperatures of the water began to fall, and although the hot sun was shining brightly, almost directly overhead, it went down to 65 degrees by 2.30 p.m. The water of the lake is brackish, yet we were able to make our camps on the banks of small streams of sweet water, although in each case near the shore of the lake. A specimen of the water, taken near the shore, was brought back to New Haven and analyzed by Dr. George S. Jameson of the Sheffield Scientific School. He found that it contained small quantities of silica, iron phosphate, magnesium carbonate, 
calcium carbonate, calcium sulfate, potassium nitrate, potassium sulfate, sodium borate, sodium sulfate, and a considerable quantity of sodium chloride. Paranacochas water contains more carbonate and potassium than that of the Atlantic Ocean or the Great Salt Lake. As compared with the salinity of typical salt waters, that of Lake Paranacochas occupies an intermediate position, containing more than Lake Coconor, less than that of the Atlantic, and only one-twentieth the salinity of the Great Salt Lake. End of Section 7 Recording by William Tomko